0: I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Only I will embrace the void. And remain indoors. Have you tried kill all the poor?
1: You are not a Buddhist. You are in a cult. Suck it, Nietzsche. The wave returns to the ocean, where it came from, and where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people.
0: Welcome, friends, to episode 149 of Embrace the Void, where we aim for flexibility over fragility. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we have a discussion about everyone's favorite current stalking horse in the social justice world. So let the struggle session begin. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. Something. My guest this week is Rod Graham, Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Old Dominion University. Rod, would you like to say hi to The Void? Hello, everyone, and thanks, Aaron, for having me. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I'm really excited to chat about this topic. Um, Before we get to our our main topic, I do tend to like to start these things out with a bit of uh, category games here. So I'm curious how you sort of personally categorize yourself philosophically and politically.
1: Yeah, um, that question, I I had to listen to a prior podcast to (laughs) to understand exactly what does he mean uh, philosophically? So so I, I guess I'll just do it in terms of research, I guess. So um uh, I am a positivist. so so your listeners, I'm a I'm a social scientist obviously. and so we we tend to embrace either positivism, uh, which is uh, understanding objective behavior and understanding uh, general laws mm-hmm. uh, through data collection and then and then there's also interpretivist. And so I, I'm a who, who would and those uh, scholars would look at the meaning of things and how people interpret the world. And so I would be a positivist. I, I guess that's relevant because our topic is a critical theory mm-hmm. and they're kind of in between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, it Philosophically, seems like, I would. Con-
0: yeah. It's it like mo- knowledge sorry, needs a mix of both. Right. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that is certainly I leave this as a very open ended question because I think, you know, instead of asking somebody like where are you on the left right spectrum or something, I think it's just curious to see where people go when they have to sort of explain who they are sure that's a very
1: interesting question and i guess politically well i don't know i mean I, I guess i would say i'm first i don't i don't affiliate with any political party that 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 seems kind of odd to me that you would associate with a with a, a party i mean there's the world is just so complex and so i don't say i'm democrat or republican but however i do have some some uh, political values i guess i'm economically progressive but socially mm-hmm. conservative which is a really weird combination but <laughs> but that's how it is can you give me some examples in
0: which ways you're socially conservative?
1: oh sure um so i I do believe in um, a national uh, a cohesive nation and so that has a, a sort of overarching values that we can all agree on and so that leads me to believe in strong borders um, mm-hmm. not I'm not anti-immigration but I do like the idea of assimilation and and um, and so that that puts me certainly on the right. Um, I'm also someone who, grew up in a Christian home. Um, I'm not, I don't go to church, but I like to characterize myself as culturally Christian, I guess. So I think that um, capitalism is, is uh, intimately tied to Judeo-Christian values. And so I'm, I'm fine with, with um, people who, you know, express their uh, religious values. So that's a part of it I'm as I get older I'm becoming uh, more pro-life which is toxic mm-hmm. in my uh department of course oh, wait, but um
0: what's whats drive- <laughs> uh, at the risk of like derailing us in totally different conversations now I'm just curious about what's driving your your shifts on these various fronts uh, who the hell knows I don't yeah know. I mean okay.
1: so some of it some of it's um some of it's just uh you know I, I think we we're born uh with certain predispositions that uh, uh, can come out over time. And so it it may be that, you know, I just, I'm just a natural uh, conservative in many ways. Uh So maybe it just took some time for me to get out of graduate school and kind of get on my own and start uh, not being influenced by uh, fellow graduate students and other professors for for that part of me to come out. Uh, Uh Maybe. Um, I don't don't know. It's also the case, though, that I, I, you know, just reading things and um, being con, being concerned about um, the nation, I-, I do feel that we're very polarized. And one way of dealing with with that would be to have a a sort of overarching uh, mm-hmm. set of values
0: that we can all agree on. So some of it's just practical mm-hmm. too. Yeah, that's interesting. So you say you're moving right a little bit. Um, on the social side, uh, I'm curious, are you also, do you feel like moving a little right on the economic side? You said you were economically liberal. What, what are the like main things that you think make you an economic liberal? And is that, are you like, are you radicalizing in the other direction on that front? Or is it like everything as you're getting older is trending a little more conservative? That's been pretty static actually. Mm-hmm. So
1: I, I tend to vote Democrat because I think my views about, um, uh, Things like uh, uh, pro-life and all those things, those are those are uh, less important than the economic things. So, uh, for example, I would prefer if we had a, a more robust uh, national health care system. I don't mind mm-hmm. uh, my tax money going to that. Um, I like the fact that we have free and reduced lunch. Um, I, I don't mind social services. Um, so that that really makes me economically progressive.
0: Okay. So from your perspective, um, how, what do you see as useful ways to categorize the different factions on the left? Because I feel like there's a lot of a lot of the game these days is how do we chunk out the left into, you know, like left versus liberal or um, postmodern versus classical or whatever, right? How do you feel like there are functional ways to divide up some of the, the important factions on the left? Okay, well... Um, to, to
1: sort of answer the question and then maybe segue into our topic on white fragility, which we can also mm-hmm. talk about uh, the you know, issues of police brutality. It might actually fit in a little bit, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, when I speak with my students about it, um, for your listeners, I'm ai actually my focus is primarily on cyber crime and cyber mm-hmm. criminology. But I do teach a class on racial inequality. And in that class, we 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 divide the polity up into four groups. Uh, the far left, and those are people who see, uh, for the purposes of the class, racism as systemic, and they want to make major overhauls in society. Then we 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 then chunk the population up into the center left, which sees racism as a individual thing, uh, like there are a few bad mm-hmm. apples type thing. Um, and if we get those, if we fix those. Uh, uh, bad apples or even bad institutions then uh, then are then we can reduce racial inequality and then we have center right which sees cultural issues as the problem right so mm-hmm. uh, within the context of um white fragility or police brutality they may focus more on the behaviors of uh black folk and then you've got the far right which is the smallest faction that would be people who see uh, uh a biological or or, or iq mm-hmm. basis for
0: um, uh, for racial inequality mm-hmm. yeah so th- i think that's a, certainly one reasonable way to map out the landscape and some of the major differences and of course I, I for each of these kinds of taxonomies you'll have people who say well i identify as xyz but i don't agree with what you're saying um so i think it is it can be difficult to really you know, give a full perfect map of it but i just think i'm just sort of continuing to try to understand how different folks see these different views because i think some folks would say for example like there's the liberals and then there's the liberal social justice warriors and mm-hmm. then there's the like left socialist marxist types and like those are the three main camps that are like duking it out so i was just curious um what you see as the as, as a helpful way to try to understand these conflicts these these on the left within the left conflicts i think as they often because like right 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 d'angelo is writing for progressive women right and he's writing for progressives broadly speaking but i guess it, like often is talking to progressive women but you know this is a conversation and debate that's being had within the left as much as you know between the left and conservatives um, though mm. it is interesting to see the role that conservative media is playing in i think fueling this process um. So. So. Yeah. Let's get. Let's get to talking about D'Angelo a little bit. And. And in order to do that, actually, one other thing that one other term that I wanted to get on the table here, like an annoying philosopher, is uh, from an article that you uh, put together. It's not, it's not originally from it. You're referencing um, uh, another author whose name I'm blanking on. I apologize. the The concept here is critical studies, um, which I thought presented a good. More neutral version of the term grievance studies. Do you want to give a little sense of like what you have in mind when you talk about sort of the category of academic activity that's critical studies? Sure. I think that was a uh, Musa Al
1: Garbi. I, I, mm-hmm. I may be garbling yes. his last name, I, but I think I, that's, I right. that's Yeah. Um, and the thing is, it's not it's not his uh, term. It's mm-hmm. just that um, he's someone who writes about these issues quite a bit, and so I felt like referencing him. But um, critical studies. For those who are not in uh, sociology or criminology, that's just a normal part of of the discipline. It's one of three ways of doing research. And so someone like me who's who's in uh, the discipline, um, when I read something like grievance studies and, and see this sort of bastardized depiction of it, I, I I don't know what they're talking about. It's one of those things where mm-hmm. someone who's not in so- social sciences, and let's say they're on the they're on the right, or they, they have some personal or political disagreements with the ideas coming out of uh, social sciences, they'll, they'll latch on to the term grievance studies. I think it's sort of uh, pleasing in some way. And it's a way of okay. denigrating those ideas so you don't have to deal with them. But okay. within sociology, um, it's just one of three ways of doing research. And it is critical studies. In fact, you can go to, um, um, I was looking at UVA's Media studies department, and they say, "Look, we're a critical studies department. That's mm-hmm. our focus." And and so they they look at the media through a critical lens. So the correct term is critical studies, and it's just uh-huh. critiquing society to make it better to to deal with oppression. Actually, there, uh, the uh, the the grievance studies article, there's spawn about what it is that grievance studies attempts to do. It's just mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that grievance studies is a such a, a negative term. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is what they wanted to do, obviously.
0: Right. I think I agree uh, but I, so I think it's valuable since there are a lot of folks listen to this who have differing views on these particular mm-hmm. studies to int- try to promote more neutral language so that we can have a more functional conversation because as you point out in that article one of the critiques of these studies is that they are political in nature and you want to say you know guilty is charged in the sense that they are deliberately intending to be critical of society and in that sense kind of political um, and it made me actually wonder um, do you you think that critical studies is effectively a branch of philosophy like is it is the critique of it as not being good science just a confusion of the fact that this is really sort of a subset of of philosophy's larger project of criticizing our knowledge as a species i don't know i I never thought of it that way i actually thought of it as a as a as a subset
1: of social science Mm-hmm. Um, they have to collect data. They, they're they're asking research questions. They're they're collecting data. Of course, they don't. They're not attempting to make it objective, and they have a, a very explicit political goal. But ultimately, um, it, you know, they they go through the normal process of of other types of um, of research. So I I didn't quite. I mean, it's possible that you can think of it as
0: philosophy, but but I don't mm-hmm. quite see it that way. You said something there that I think will. Maybe jump out at some folks who said they they collect data, but they don't try to make it objective. No, maybe no. say a little bit more about what you, because like for most people, you know, when they think, oh, well, you're collecting data so that the data will help you determine whether or not your view is objectively true or not. So what are we, what are we doing here if we're collecting data, but not trying to make it objective?
1: Sure. Okay. So um, I guess I could start with me maybe and okay. how I uh, do research and then. And then, and then talk about interpretive and then put critical in the middle. That's probably the best way to, to think about it. So, so a, a standard normal way of doing uh, science would be to collect objective data. You know, you do the whole scientific method thing. You ask the questions and you do the um, hypothesis alternative and you collect the data. And that's sort of the standard way of doing it across all sciences, including uh, still sociology, although mm-hmm. we're starting to lose number, I think. And then within sociology, there's a, another... Uh, Subset of scholars who would argue that there may be some objective reality out there, but we can't get at it as humans, um, mm-hmm. at least in terms of the type of uh, studies that we're doing. Right, so you can get at that with in physics or biology, but because humans are a symbolic species and they're constantly changing their ideas, it's just better to focus on the meanings. So, you, so, so they are interpretive social social sciences scientists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a good example would be um, I study cyberbullying. So I'll try and do some observables, whether it be through survey data, um, or whether it be through or whether it be through some text that's left online that I could objectively look at and categorize and quantify in some way. Whereas an interpretive social scientist would just talk to people and figure out, well, how did you feel when you were bullied? And then through that, they would come to some patterns and understand that behavior. And that's it. That's, that's not objective. That's, that's, a sub, that's a, understanding the subjective perceptions of people in that scene. Mm-hmm. So what critical sociologists do is what they call uh, the dialectic. Mm-hmm. They grant that there is an objective reality out there, um, but they also understand that people live their lives subjectively. So they bounce back and forth between the two. You can notice with uh, D'Angelo's work, mm-hmm. she gives the perceptions from white, uh, from the people that she has, uh, I guess she did this through her, um, what what's the work that she does? She does the uh, diversity training. So okay. through her diversity training, she's uh, collated these perceptions from from white folks. At the same time, she'll bounce back and talk about the objective realities of racial inequality. And so through this, Back and forth, he tries to reveal some some deeper understanding that mm-hmm. can be used for liberation. So, 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 the notion of objective doesn't quite um, it works for me, and it but it doesn't quite work for critical or um, or uh, interpretive uh, sociologists.
0: So that's—I mean—that's interesting to me because I would say, like, it still feels like what you're doing there. If, if you—if you're doing that dialectic, right, the back and forth mm-hmm. between the subjective experience and then the objective truth, I ultimately feel like you're doing it towards the end of trying to gain some you know capital k knowledge about the world and like we can quibble over whether that knowledge should best be categorized as inner subjective or something like that um, but it is still you know like we put it in the real category in the sense that it's telling us something that isn't just something that our brains made up right we're not just making up fake patterns we're actually observing patterns out there in the world and i that I, that seems important to me because a lot of times it seems like when folks are critiquing the critical uh, studies views and the like D'Angelo's of the world they hear the part about the subjective side of the dialectic and they kind of either don't hear or or misunderstand or ignore the objective side and so they come out thinking that these views are radically subjective on a lot of a lot more things than i think they actually are radically subjective on would you would you say that that's fair as a as a concern here i think a lot of the detractors do
1: uh, see, perceive that objectivity, or or put. Actually, I, I think first off that it, it, even if knowledge is subjective, it's still important because mm-hmm. it can it can reveal something about human behavior. So that in itself, I don't think is a is a bad thing. But you're right that that the detractors of of critical studies will say that well, because this is just subjective. Uh, you know, what does it mean? You know, um, it, it has no it has no meaning for me or other people or in reality. Um, I'm not. I'm not so sure about that. Though. I think that um, if you can understand people, the way people perceive their world, that tells you a lot about why they're doing the things that that they're doing. You can't generate some broad law of human nature from that, but maybe that's not your purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so with uh, with critical theory, they are bouncing back and forth, but their purpose is not to generate a law of white fragility. Their purpose is uh-huh. to, or, or any other thing like heteronormativity or or any of these ideas that come from uh critical, critical studies. Instead, they're 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 just trying to create a certain type of knowledge that people can use in their everyday lives to make their lives uh-huh. better. In fact, the value of that knowledge, so for me, the value of my knowledge is that it produces it's reproducible. You know, I, uh-huh. I I try to run the regression model and and find some some statistical regularity uh that I will get. That is that will occur ninety five out of hundred times, you know, the statistically significant thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, but but critical theorists would say, well, I, the value for me is in producing knowledge that I can then hand back to people in that scene, and it can be useful to them in understanding their world. And mm-hmm. I say on that on that metric, D'Angelo's work is uh, is just amazing. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of of. Of uh, of her work, I have my critiques, mm-hmm. but but they're not but they're not based upon the work itself. They're based upon what happens after we, mm-hmm. after we start
0: using or trying to trying to use white fragility in our lives. Okay, so yeah, so you're ascribing to her a kind of pragmatism about her approach to knowledge here, which I think, um, you know there's a, there's a lot of senses in which pragmatism is is valuable and useful especially when we're dealing with things like human psychology and behavior whereas you say it's it, the hard sciences have a have a hard time getting a handle on them um, so I think a lot of what you're saying here makes sense to me. So I want to dive into this this White Fragility um, paper-slash-book now at this point. Um, and I just want to mention the timing, I think, is very funny. You and I—so I was interested in talking about this material as a case study of a piece of critical theory that often— that, that like, draws a lot of heat, I think, from criticism, from, from critics of the critical studies, right? That, like, this is on their 10 most wanted list of things they want. Want to pick fights about um and mm-hmm. so i really wanted to like do a deep dive and see is it as bad as they say it is like what's you know like is there a major problem here like they describe or is it you know a lot tamer than that um and then i saw you tweeting about it a little bit so we were we had set that up and then like in, within the week, right, since we had scheduled this, the New York Times puts out a bestseller list like it usually does. And that list, which I think some people are now calling the new social justice canon, is like, you know, all... Uh, social justice books of various sorts, right? It's like every everything, like like literally the ten most wanted list of like the grievance studies folks, right? And then at the top mm-hmm. of the list, you've got White Fragility, um, by D'Angelo, right? And so I'm curious, what was your reaction when you saw that list? What what which is initially is your subjective experience of that list? So
1: I have not seen the list, but I I, I okay. can imagine that the books on that list would be at the top, and it's it's because the writing, um. Well, first off, we're in this time where people are trying to understand uh, racial inequality and police brutality, so that's that's one reason. But it's mm-hmm. also that the 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 way that those scholars write is just much better than the way that you know, I mean, it's just more meaty, right? It's a better uh-huh. read than 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 a lot of the uh, data-oriented type of science, uh-huh. which is also the case for the for interpretive scholars. It's, it's historically been the case that. Sociologists or even criminologists who study gangs by, you know, embedding themselves in a gang and then writing about their experiences, you know, that gets on the bestseller list. Whereas if if someone goes yeah. and looks at data over hundred years, okay, I mean no one no one reads that. So so some of that's just that it's uh it's more readable mm-hmm. and we're also in a uh, in the time where that matters. So that's not surprising that they're at the top. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, in some ways that's fine uh, with me. My only my concern, and we haven't even gotten into white fragility yet, so this is uh, into the concepts. But my concern is that those are ideas that need to be explored further scientifically. Mm -hmm. So it's good if you are maybe an administrator and you want to initialize if you want, and you want to start a dialogue on white fragility to pick up D'Angelo's book, which I I read the book before I saw the article, you told me about the article and I had to go and look at it, but it would be good for uh, someone in, um, in uh, diversity training or something, There's some administrator who wants to talk about diversity, to pick up D'Angelo's book. It's uh eminently readable. Uh it can, it can be shocking, actually. Uh I love that book because mm-hmm. I it it it, op- it it sort of opens the the
0: um the closet to what white folks are thinking. And I, I just didn't know, you know.
1: <laughs> so so, you, you so anyway,
0: you feel like it does accurately diagnose something that's going on, right? Do you do you have like particular experiences of uh, that you feel like may be involved white fragility? Absolutely, and I'm glad
1: you asked that question um, because it it it's what makes it valuable, right? Uh-huh. So so that administrator can can use that, and people can quickly latch onto it because that's the whole point of of. Uh, that's the value in critical studies. So yes, um, I can remember exactly. Uh, so let's see. I've been at my university, Old Dominion University, for uh, six years now, and I've been on a lot of hiring committees, and um, a four or five. And usually, when you are a racial minority at a university, mm-hmm. they have to ask minorities to be on committees to make the committee at least appear diverse. And therefore, uh, you know, I guess the implication would be that you're coming to some kind of uh, diverse <laughs> consensus. Cons- I, I don't know why they do that, because it, it never happens that way. You, you have one uh, black person, and one Hispanic person and, and four white people. So that, that black person is just kind of window dressing. So I was the window dressing mm-hmm. for, for uh, four or five uh, committees. And so on that fifth committee, I said, to, to my colleagues and and they're very good people, so even if someone would come across this i I hope they won't they won't take it the wrong way but I came I, I told my colleagues I said, look, we have brought to campus about 50 potential uh, faculty members we you know you bring in like four or five and you hire one okay. and so so we brought in about 50. None of those people were black, were black men or black women. I said, "Look, this is beyond stati- I mean, this this there's no way that this is happening by chance." Right. And so I brought that to them. Um, and and look, we're not a this elite. We're not Stanford or uh, we're a good school, but we're not Stanford. We're not Harvard, and we're not in physics. So there's no pipeline problem. I mean, it's pop- people were applying. And so and I was like, "Well, look, if you guys are interested in diversity, here's here's something right here. You know, uh, you're doing something wrong here. I believe." And, of course, they got they got upset. They said, well, gosh, there's no way that, you know, this is about race at all. It just so happens that these things, you know, it fell out that way. And they were they were upset with me. Mm-hmm. I was the bad guy for bringing up a racial problem. It so happened that I had gotten D'Angelo's White Fragility book the semester before. And it was like reading a playbook because the things mm-hmm. that they said were exactly what she said they would say.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: and so, yes, I've, I've had experiences with that. And, and the thing is, m- my colleagues are exceptional people um i, I mean it, it, there's no there's no implication here that they're racist i just think that they were they were trying to hire people that they felt they would be comfortable with but those mm-hmm. people happen to be happened to be white scholars
0: yeah i mean that's that's very interesting and like certainly tracks with my experiences being a, a white individual in academia in that um I have all pretty much always been in majority white departments and philosophy is particularly not great on this subject. And I think now in my um, you know top tier philosophy department that I'm currently teaching, and I think we have one person of color as a full-time faculty, so... Mm-hmm. It's it's not great. Um, And I want to talk, you know, I want to get to some of the objections. I'm not going to just let you roll me here on all these subjects because of your your standpoint, epistemology superiority. But um, I do want to first try to define these terms here a little bit. Um, So let's let's see what we can do here for this whiteness. So D'Angelo gives a couple of definitions. One is um, the specific dimension of racism that served to elevate white people over people of color. So what do you think about that as a definition of whiteness as this a, it seems like it's functionally equating whiteness to uh white supremacy. Do you think that's accurate? Yes, I I, I that's not my understanding of uh of
1: whiteness. Um mm-hmm. I would I, I, to me whiteness is like a state of being maybe. I mean, so mm-hmm. so yeah, I agree with you it, it seems to be more about uh white supremacy that particular
0: definition, yeah. Mhm. I I mean, so yeah it seems like it is a, a strong like a a non um not what we would normally consider like the not the mainstream definition here and this is something that you see actually a couple of times in the critical theory stuff so you also see the debate over uh the definition of racism right which is being used here in this definition of whiteness the debate between racism as racial prejudice like animus by a specific individual towards another one on racial grounds versus the kind of power prejudice model where uh, by some accounts you know you know for example, you can't be racist against white people because they're in positions of power. Do you have any thoughts about that? That conflict over the concept of racism and how that uh, impacts what we're discussing here with whiteness. So that individual definition, I, I don't. I don't think
1: that necessarily gets at at racism.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: this idea of individuals making deci- you know prejudice or discrimination. I mean, that does happen. But uh, my understanding of racism is that it's best understood through the, those aren't terms that I've used, power model, um, but mm-hmm. um, that makes sense to me that it's, it's, it's more of a group based, um, one group dominating
0: another group. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're sympathetic to that kind of power model. And that, I mean, like, what I see yeah. is that that being applied here into the issue of whiteness. Now, of course, she also gives definitions of whiteness as, that are more along the tra- traditional idea of, like, uh, the standpoint from which white people see the world mm-hmm, or the set mm-hmm. of practices that, that are um, systemic within white society that go kind of unmarked um, and unnamed. Do you feel like these are... um you know, it's somewhat plausible this cluster of accounts of whiteness is, again, a practical, useful definition for us to be working with here. You know, definitions are hard, man, because it's uh, mm-hmm. you.
1: There, there's so many ways of describing I mean, like just think about systemic racism. I've heard structural racism, institutional racism, you know, all of these different mm-hmm, things. Systemic mm-hmm. is the hot thing now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't I don't know. I can't speak to the accuracy of those definitions. Like, how would you tease them apart and. Say which one is more accurate, but there's certainly. I think if you're trying to have a conversation about whiteness, um, then you know any definition that that speaks to the you know white people having a particular viewpoint is fine. It'll start it'll start the definition or, mm-hmm. or start the discussion. It's the same with systemic racism. You you can kind of you know muck around and say well it's about institutions and practices and patterns, and then from there you can then start you can then start the the discussion. So these are these things are very murky. And if you read a I don't read many critical theory papers, but um, it's mm-hmm. really beyond my linguistic verbal ability. I mean, they're very good with the with the uh, language and sometimes it's, it's so opaque. I can't always I can't always uh, tease those things apart.
0: Yeah, I think I'm, academia, broadly speaking, in these parts in particular, like. Part of the publish and perish stuff, I think, is at play here. But there is a kind of obscurantism problem sometimes. There was, for example, a passage in this in in the White Fragility paper, the original one, about um, habitus, which Mm -hmm. meant very little to me. And it didn't seem to have any role in the rest of the paper and felt kind of like academic jargon. Um, Whereas I think you're right that these – well, these definitions do seem practical now that the the potential concern here is that they are – Um, value-laden, and she acknowledges as much that, like, you know... So the, the critiques of these views, some of them will come at them and say, look, you know, you're starting with value-laden concepts, and you need to begin with more value-neutral concepts and then build your arguments up from there in some kind of way. Like if you're trying to bring other people into your worldview who don't necessarily immediately share your values, right, they're just going to reject these these definitions outright. I'm curious, do you think that's a concern, and do you think that we could really get by with more neutral definitions Are being put forward here, or is it that like part of the problem is we really do need these these value laden concepts that are going to be upsetting to some people?
1: Well, so I am they are value laden and they will turn people off, even when I teach my students, um, you know, know, talking about something like white supremacy. They're like, Well, what do you you mean? I mean, it's just very hard to to have that conversation because it it automatically indicts a, a group of people. Mm-hmm. um and before you even get into explaining what that means um so these it is a problem they are value value-laden um i think that for the critical scholar they're fine with that because they they want to uh swim around in those values mm-hmm. i think that the the problem in the, in my discipline as a whole is that there aren't other scholars who are willing to abstract those concepts out so i, I think you you wrote about you wrote to me about Mm-hmm. Um white fragility is like a subset of some broader, um some broader patterns. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I I think almost any any behavior that you can attribute to white folks in 2020, you can abstract out and make it more neutral and say, well, okay, you've got um a superordinate group and they're doing <laughs> something to a subordinate group, and then you can study it that way, and people would maybe be more appreciative of it. I like that approach. But, but um, you know, mm-hmm. critical studies is very sexy. I mean, it's um you know people students love it. You so know, hot it's, right it's, now, it's, yes.
0: <laughs> and so it's it's just hard to stop that 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 steamroller. Well, and there's also kind a like problem. We're talking there about where, it now, yeah, yeah. right? We're, we're. I mean, you bring up an interesting point there, though. In switching to the neutral language, you switched to formal academic language, which immediately got very, you know, like boring and and like overly, you know, like very precise as well, but like. There's sort of a catch-22 where if you try to use that kind of language, you get accused of being too sort of academic and obscure, but if you use sort of simple confrontational language like white fragility, you are accused of, you know, the the opposite problem, right? So it's like there's there's no right language it often feels like and this is you know again something that she gets at with her view that like part of the issue is it's not the language right and like there's no amount of couching this in just the right kind of language that is going to prevent it from producing reactions it seems like um so let me let's talk a little bit about some of the factors that she points to that like exacerbate white fragility. Like what is the what is the stuff that she sees actually happening and and like what's making it worse in the philosophy behind whiteness. Um so the one of the practical things she points to um is segregation. Um and I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether Like segregation is still a major problem in our society, and whether you're optimistic about any methods um, that can change it. I mean, speaking for me personally, I spent the first thirty years of my life in white majority areas, and then like the the past six years in white minority neighborhoods. Um, I don't feel like I have like a lot of fragility as a point as a result of necessarily coming from those neighborhoods and living in these neighborhoods. Um, But at the same time, like I've never had a class taught by a person of color. This will be this fall when i'm starting my education phd it'll be my first time having that you know i don't have kids so i don't have to worry about the segregated schools issue but my like liberal white friends are on various levels sort of aware of the difference between good and not good schools um, in a way that seems kind of problematic to me so i mean i'm curious what's your sort of take on how how things are going on this front and is there any hope of it getting better uh, I think the data the data suggests that segregation has decreased um mm-hmm. s-
1: since the 1950s uh black folk are still by far the most segregated uh racial minority um i don't I don't know the numbers but um but but it's still a problem if you think of it as a problem i mean i i i, I guess on on one hand on the one hand i'm I'm fine with people wanting to to stay in the neighborhoods that uh they want to stay in um uh, mm-hmm. On the other hand, I guess there are some consequences of that, and that would be that you don't get to understand another group. You, you see them as these cardboard cutouts. You don't get to see the complexities. So that mm-hmm. could be a problem.
0: Um, so, so you're sympathetic so to her view, be- at least, that, that segregation is a, a factor that is exacerbating Because, you know, in the, in the, like, one of the jokes I made when I was reading through this, I'm like, you know, white fragility sounds to me like basic virtue theory, that like, all we're saying is, you know, white people aren't habituated to deal with racial stress and so when it happens they crack and like one of the ways that you could get habituated to it is by being around it right In 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 reasonable doses by actually being around people of different other races um do you feel like there is some sort of connection between like if a person just never has to spend any time around people who don't look exactly like them that they're gonna have a much harder time when they're put in those people's presence
1: Yes, I, I do. Uh, just anecdotally, I, I I can sense that. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't read any uh, studies or anything, but but certainly, and and I think there's a broader argument as well, though. So let's say you, it is true that you, when you spend time with people, you get to know them a little bit better, and uh, if they're from a group that you don't know much about, then you can become more sympathetic to that group, uh, provided that your interactions are positive, right? So mm-hmm. so it's one thing to be a, a friend with uh, someone in your college in in your dorm room, you know, you're, you're dorm, you're um, living with a black person, but then, you know, you go to the DMV and the woman behind the counter is, is, is giving you crap. You may, you may actually, that's interaction, but you're developing a negative uh, viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so positive views. Um, that's a part of it. But, I, but, but because we're thinking of, of um, whiteness and I guess, I guess white supremacy and, you know, these in systemic race and things in these broader uh, levels, the individual interactions are a part of it, but it's also the case. I think D'Angelo would argue, and I think so too, that the messages that we get also tell us that whiteness is something that to be valued, and there's not much there's not much value in thinking about uh, race or racism or the racial other. Um, mm-hmm. So, 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 I mean, segregate a similar uh, integration is is wonderful it's a good start but because this thing
0: this problem is it has multi multiple levels it's just a start so you think our culture still signals in on media and like our media landscape still signals a kind of white supremacy is that what you're saying and less okay I, yes
1: th- th- thanks for clarifying i i, I think um I don't know, we're doing such a good job of at least putting, I mean, I have a little joke amongst, uh, with my, my wife is, uh, is a Korean, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it's the wonderful thing about, about. and she wasn't born here, so she was born in Korea and came here, and uh, <clears throat> the wonderful thing about about people who are not from the U.S. is they don't develop the politically correct language. Hmm. And so and so she'll just say what's on her mind. I remember my first job at Rhode Island College, I'm getting to a point here, but I, I need to kind of take the detour. No, um, it's fine. Okay. I remember my first job at Rhode Island College. Um, um, we moved from New York City where I got my PhD. We moved to Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. And all the people that were in service positions were white. And she said, oh, this is America. I've never seen this before. That there were white people who were um, in service positions. And I, I, I understand that. If you're mm-hmm. in New York City, you're, you're going to see you know people who at least appear on the outside to be wealthy, to be majority white taking the cabs and whatnot. And, and then you're going to see people who are going to work early, six or seven in the morning in service positions as black or brown. Uh-huh. Um, and, so, and, so, and so I see that. And so we, get to, we, we can talk back and forth about um, things that um, other people may not talk about. So anyway, I'm saying that because she will notice, and she got me to notice, that every time there's this television show where you, there's an authority figure that comes in, that person is black. Or that person mm-hmm. is Hispanic, or that person is so so. Like you watch, I don't know. I mean, for for our ages, it would be Friends or something. So so they mm-hmm, go to the doctor, mm-hmm. and the doctor's black or something. They mm-hmm. go to the the court, and the court the court. Not in
0: Friends, black. but certainly in other shows. Right.
1: <laughs> well, no, no. Even in Friends, we
0: saw it in Friends. You know, they the main characters are are white, but in order to diversify things, they would. Would I think pre- Friends had, like, four people of color over its entire run, even in supporting Uh-oh. cast. So oh, really? <laughs> I, 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 do, I, I do get what you're saying in principle, that, like, yeah, yeah, there, yeah. Is a, there is a cultural push to, like, put... You know, like the, it's like the black president trope, I, is, I feel like, you know, like, yeah, so yeah, many yeah, action yeah, yeah, yeah. movies, you know, starting in, like, the 90s, start to have, like, the Morgan Freeman-style president. Um, that's right, that's right. Yeah, you yeah. know, like... And, and, yeah, and it is... It does feel like it is an attempt to... I mean, like, I do think... <laughs> let, me, let me refer to it as, as my my friend the paradox of progress right that like i simultaneously feel like i can point to specific examples of progress and also feel like we're not making progress in a big way um and and maybe that's that's something like what you're getting at here maybe i i think that uh um things are
1: changing uh, they're probably mm-hmm. not uh, changing at the rate that many uh progressives would want or people of color would want but it's certainly not like it was In 1970 or 80, where there was no Mm -hmm. attempt to diversify the media or um, or if you had diversity in occupations, it would be like these, you know, specific affirmative action type things. Mm -hmm. Now there's just real a a real attempt to integrate uh, people of color
0: into all aspects of social life yeah and i guess one point we could put for the claim that it is it is, it is actually occurring and successful is that you are seeing increased pushback to it right that like as as more of these spots and and parts of the media are being filled up by these more multicultural lifestyle perspectives there is a lot of like you know people saying this is this is being forced on us it's it's an overwhelming amount of it it's stuff like that um so you know i i, now, I, I a danger. back like forth. yeah Oh, mm-hmm. sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. So I was going to say, the, the, the,
1: the, yeah, the, there's a danger in this. Um, mm-hmm. Things can be a, a little too symbolic. Mm-hmm. So you can, you know, be a member of Congress, a Demo- a Democratic member of Congress and get on your knee with a kentic cloth on and somehow, <laughs> you know, that's supposed to mean something. And oh, it doesn't. I mean, yeah. I think ultimately people of, of color are are looking for some economic progress. You know, it's nice to see your say uh, face on
0: television, but it's jobs and, and these things that matter the most. Since you brought it up, can I ask, why Why would the Democratic Black Caucus give them those? I, I like, have no idea. You I, know they're not going to use them appropriately. <laughs> like, you you know, this is like handing a gun to a small child. Why would you do this? I, ha- uh, I don't know
1: what was going on. Don't, don't they know. have like media people in,
0: in their staff? Oh, like, anybody. that just seems like a bad move. I, I don't know. I know, and I just feel like I, I were crushed between a white nationalist death cult and some people who are <laughs> kneeling with cloth as a solution to the white nationalist death cult. Uh, okay, uh, it's getting off track. Um, my white fragility is showing. Um, no, uh, let's talk about there's another um, thing that she points to that I think is also a, a really big point of debate and this comes back to the subjective objective thing we were discussing earlier which is the the universalism and individualism and that there's this kind of she highlights that there's a tension and i think this is true but i think it's true in all of us that we're all like trying to balance our sense of the universal and our sense of the individual but like she points out that um with white fragility both you know appeals to universal like i'm not a member of a group i'm uh or, or, or sorry we're all members of like the same human group or something so why break us down versus the individual i'm my own individual and don't so don't make me out to be you know just like every other uh white person that like these mm. these are sort of used in this dual way um to kind of habituate uh, in you know, um, to oh, to end up habituating white people into seeing themselves ultimately as the neutral observer, and this is, I think, a really interesting point. She sort of says, and, and I've seen this elsewhere that like part of the problem is sort of whites don't see themselves as one um one group amongst many, right? They see themselves as the sta- the norm, and then like every other group is like a standard deviation off from that norm mm-hmm. in some way or another. And I'm curious, do you agree with that sort of analysis? Analysis that says that like whiteness centers white whiteness while also making it this kind of invisible lens through which we see the world.
1: Hmm. Well, okay. Uh, first off, this idea that that um, at least anecdotally now I, I have it seems to me that that white students and and white colleagues tend to take a more individualistic approach to things. Um, that observation. Um, that, that she made makes a lot of sense to me. It, it has value mm-hmm. in that way. It seems to resonate with my experiences. Um, but, but it is the case. Uh, just just um, anytime you're the norm, like you're the numerical norm, or uh, you, you, it's hard to imagine that you are one of many, I guess, the way that you said it, you're one of many groups. Okay. It's very difficult. So if you if you ask a, a white person to to talk about their race, they they imagine that they're, they are not a part of a race. It's only uh, black people that are a part of a race or Hispanic people are part of a race. But that's because, you know, you everything you see suggests that you're just there. You're just mm-hmm. neutral. And, and that happens all the time. I mean, I'm a black scholar, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not necessarily a scholar first. I'm a black scholar. So that happens all the time. Um, so. You know, I I I hope I'm getting at what you're saying. Maybe not, mm-hmm. but um, it is certainly the case that that my anecdotal experiences are that are that white folks tend to tend to think in individualistic terms, and they and they don't see their their race. Um, and so and so, and so they see their opinions yeah. their views as universal. Um, most definitely, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I had a conversation with Heather Heather McDonald. Who mm-hmm. I really do. You know, uh, this, this person she's kind of notorious. She she does the um, the uh, conservative viewpoint about police brutality. Yeah, she, uh, she she does the she writes these books about how black Sounds people familiar. are actually yeah. committing more crimes, right? Uh huh, yeah, she's right yes, about okay. a lot of mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah, she's right about a lot of that. I mean, it gets me in trouble with my colleagues when I when I say, look, it's not so simple that, that black that police are going out just shooting people, there's some some complexity there, and she she brings in some good points. So, anyway, we, we had this conversation, and uh, we, we were talking at, at this time about removing white scholars from um, humanities courses, you know, there's a push for that. And, and mm-hmm. so I was trying to get her to see that, well, I agree with you that some of these things are necessary so we can have a common view of our, of our, uh, of our heritage. It's also the case that a white scholar cannot necessarily speak to the experiences or white, a white writer cannot speak mm-hmm. to the experiences of, of a of someone in the South who's black. It's very hard for them to do that. And so she was like, no, 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 you you can, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, these are universal uh, things, love and beauty and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. jealousy. And I was like, yes, you're right to some degree, but you know, people are different and you, and you might need to let a black person or a Hispanic or a woman speak for themselves. And so I do get that a lot with uh, mm-hmm. um, some white, it's changing though, but uh, with some white people, Or at least in reading. I don't have these conversations that much, but I mean, just reading the social media and and blog posts, the argument would be that, oh, this is universal. You know, Shakespeare is universal. So that's it. You know, you don't need to worry about a black scholar.
0: So that kind of gets at my my question I was going to ask about, like, uh, how would you push back on the idea that we're all individuals? Um, and But I think there's also this sort of alternate objection, right, to playing both sides of the field here. How would you push back on the objection that um, people from similar racial backgrounds uh, have widely disparate experiences and that this tends to, that what you were just saying could tend to lead us to something like tokening uh, of individuals and expecting them to um, have a, a wise and broad take on these subjects? Hmm. Well, I mean, wait, tokening in in the sense that
1: we select one person to speak for all, one writer to speak for the for all black experiences. Well, sort or, of
0: like what you were saying earlier, where you in your department, right? Um, you're kind of called upon. It seems oh, like to, yeah, right yeah, to yeah, not yeah. just play window dressing, but also to like. You know, take the perspective of your particular group in this kind of way. Um, and as you're saying, you know, some, like, this, this is a tension, it seems to me, right? There's a genuine mm-hmm. tension here where mm-hmm. it seems true that, I don't have right the standpoint to have the epistemic access to the certain kinds of information, um, but I also want to acknowledge that other members of those groups might also not have that knowledge, even though they do have that particular, they might have that kind of standpoint access. Is that is that maybe a, a fair way to put it? I think so. So, I mean, the only way to
1: kind of relieve that tension would be to mm-hmm. have more, uh, more, people of color, uh, in that space. So yes, mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the, well, now there, there, there's two black males in my department. So, but before, if there, was a, if there was a question about black males or, or, um, you know, we're, we're having these kind of, uh, mm-hmm. group discussions as a department about how to bring in more minority students or something, you know, they, they would look to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, then I'm the, I'm the token, but as more, more people, more black, uh, scholars have come on we've hired another black male and um and and we've had some <laughs> another yes too but um but yeah and, and so that makes it a little easier for us for us to have a more diverse opinion because they're just more of us
0: mm-hmm. well, so, so, that's, so i guess the only way to relieve my attention is to have more yeah yeah so that's funny because um i'm in my head here over here trying to play white devil's advocate because i I really don't want to just like you know give it all of these things a pass because as you said i think it is often too easy that there is not enough criticism done so you know another objection that i see a lot is that these systems are really just self-reinforcing that the conclusions they come to is you know you just need to have more people of color in more of these spaces and and like it does that just prove that this is really just about sort of shifting the paradigm in such a way where a new group of people are now the dominant group and, and get to be in power? Or, you know, another way that this is put is a lot of times folks clump complain that, any critique of D'Angelo's work is itself treated as an instance of white fragility, right? And so how do we distinguish between, you know, when we are just sort of caught up in this mindset and continuing to try to find an equity that, like, maybe doesn't, isn't real or couldn't necessarily get there or something versus, like, uh, how, many, how often are we, you know, how do we tell when, when someone is really actually caught up in the grip of white fragility in this kind of way?
1: Yeah, that's hard. I mean, we it uh, it would be nice if other scholars would start with um, D'Angelo's idea, which is really meant for people in everyday life, and and take that and then say, okay, let's let's go back to the drawing board, and identify in some way um, what is what is an example of being fragile, you know, being defensive, and what what would be an example of just you know offering constructive pushback mm-hmm. um i mean it, it, it's not impossible i mean I, i'm i'm surprised one of the things that's happening in sociology is we're just losing many scholars who are interested in doing that kind of work it's become like a um a negative or or being naive to assume that you can do that kind of rigorous work um mm. or at least it appears that way to me um but we need more people to do that um because you're right i mean uh, you know any objection is often seen as if it's itself uh, an example of fragility but that would that just overdetermines things i mean what anything right. you say is 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 fragile you just have to agree and of course that's not right and so it would take someone but but the kernel of the idea uh, is important and i think she's onto something uh, and it, it would just take someone other than her you know she's done <laughs> her job to to come out and say okay let's let's get in the lab and 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 let's measure these things and let's set up some alternative hypotheses and let's see what happens
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And as you mentioned in your article, right, we shouldn't expect of someone like this to do all the kinds of work that you've been describing over this hour. Right. That like one someone can be doing critical work and then someone else can come along and do the, the data gathering side. And that's OK. Like that's how this that's how the academic world is supposed to work. Everybody sort of chipping in in that kind of way. Um, so before we run out of time here, there were a few other criticisms and concerns, sort of more broadly speaking, that I'm just curious to get your thoughts on. Do you think it matters that Robin D'Angelo is white? Like, is it important in any way? And like if it is, in what ways is it important? You know, that was a that was a pretty good question, actually. I think for me personally, <laughs> it
1: added credibility. <laughs> it added okay. credibility uh, to her research because it seems as if she would have insight into more insight into what white folks were thinking than I would or black scholar mm-hmm. would. So if she's saying it, then um, it's like, okay, well there, there's something, there's something to that. It, it would be the same as if, if I was reading uh, something about uh, the queer community, I would rather hear it from someone who is queer, at least this kind of work than, than mm-hmm. someone who is straight. So, yeah. And, um, but it also adds to the level of vitriol, I think in a way it's like, you know, mm. Here's this white person talking about, from white folks, by the way, vitriol from white
0: folks, I believe. It's not as easily
1: dismissed. Yeah. Well, do you really think that she would
0: get, she gets more because she, like, if she were a black woman instead of a white woman, do you think that she would get, like, do you think she would get less sort of pushback? I
1: think so because it would be, it could be easily dismissed as, okay, here's this, here's this. Um, angry mm-hmm. black woman who's writing this about uh, white people. Let's let's laugh at it a bit, but uh, because uh-huh. it's because she's it's, a race trader, it's different. Right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it sort of feels that way, but I, I would really need to hear more from white folks about how they think about that. You know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's something to that. I think,
0: yeah. Well, I think I think we could also acknowledge there is a genuine and like she acknowledges this too, which is there's a tension where you know, to be the the white person who's helping out by adding your voice in this kind of way, you're also the white person who's getting re-centered in the discussion. And we've just, you know, we spent this entire hour talking about a white scholar as opposed to, you know, all of the non-white scholars on that list. And it's like, it's a, it's a painful irony. It's why, I, like, halfway through prepping for this, I was feeling really guilty that this was going to be our topic. Um, but, like, on the other hand, I also think there's something to the idea that, the weirdly the opposite of your vitriol point though i also agree there is a lot of vitriol that like the people who hate her hate her even more because she's white mm-hmm. but also it's probably true that a lot of white folks can hear what she's saying better because she's white that like if there is any way to sort of de-escalate white fragility part of it is probably if the critiques are coming from inside the house as it were um so like oh, yeah, that's true yeah you know, where there is this real tension where you, like, you want to give her enough influence and power that she can actually be doing this kind of work, but you also want to be, you know, like that, you want to be centering the voices of actual people of color as well. And I think you're also probably right from a standpoint perspective that, like, she knows what what these people are thinking a little bit better because she's one of these people and has thought it herself and has heard the things that we hear when, you know, we are not in mixed company and such like that. So right, right. right. And actually, um, I don't think that this is, um, I mean, she's talking about white folks,
1: so she should be the one. In other words, Mm -hmm. if if we were talking about some white scholars discussion of black folk, Mm -hmm. then it would be a little problematic. But we're actually talking about a white white person's Mm -hmm. discussion about white people. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's quite appropriate, uh, Mm -hmm. actually.
0: What do you think about Um, the concern that that she and other critical scholars are overly pessimistic about white people's ability to escape their whiteness. Do you feel like we are essentially trapped in our whiteness? Do you feel like we can make it better, but never make it go away completely? Like, what do you think is that is the right way to convey sort of the end game of all of this to white people? Well, I think that. Uh... Yeah,
1: you, um, Aaron, are trapped in your whiteness, but I am trapped in my blackness. Uh, but, okay. I, but but I think the, the the problem would be the the power differential. So, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be to be uh, white? What does it mean to be black or Hispanic? And so so that's the the issue. Um, once those power differences are are leveled, or being white takes the um, the meaning of being Irish, which is uh, very little meaning in the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. Other than just something that you celebrate every now and then, then when that happens, then um, then I think you know everything would be fine. I do think that critical scholars are overly pe- pessimistic, you know, because they're always critiquing everything, and it's mm-hmm. and it's and it's often the case that there are so many positive things that are going on in the U.S., but because the the whole goal is to alleviate oppression, you can always find oppression somewhere, so you mm-hmm. end up talking about it. Uh, so so
0: so yeah, they are pretty uh, pessimistic. Okay. Are you, Speaking of, I, I wanted to, since we did spend all of this time talking about a white person, talking about white people, who are sort of people of color who are doing work on these issues, who you think, you know, like, are there other folks from that, that list? I know you haven't seen the New York Times list, but like, um, you know, do you feel like folks like Tennessee Coates are better folks to be reading on these subjects? Or, you know, like, what books would you put, uh, would you point, uh, you know, well-meaning white progressives like myself towards Well, okay, so DeAngelo's White
1: Fragility, in my opinion, is the most um, popular book, maybe transformative Mm -hmm. book in in the last uh, four or five years. But before hers, uh, a Duke scholar, he's also a critical race scholar, Mm -hmm. Eduardo Bonilla-Silva wrote a book called... um, racism without racists and it's um uh, i think it's in his third edition and that was also transformative it was more within the discipline though and not necessarily uh-huh. something that that became a part of the public narrative and it was it was a very good book because he well i guess he would be a critical scholar but certainly his methods are more interpretive so uh-huh. he and other graduate students he just interviewed white people and asked them about their um, and, and some black, but he focused primarily on whites, and asked them about their um, perceptions of racial inequality. And, and, and the general gist of it was that uh, white folks tend to profess color blindness. And by doing that, okay. they can say, look, I don't see color. It doesn't matter in my life. And so therefore, they can, that justifies them not supporting any policies that would alleviate racial inequality. Mm-hmm. And and that book became and he became he's he was the president of the ASA. Uh, uh, he's a quite big name. So 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 before D'Angelo, that's the one that
0: I really look to for some insight. Mm-hmm. I when you say um, I don't see color, I I can only think of Stephen Colbert's years of his character saying I never I don't see color. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I I am interested and and like because in my ethics work I come from a systems theory background a lot of the time, I'm much more sympathetic to, like, looking at the way that systems drive behavior rather than, like, attributing it to the radical free will of an individual or something like that. So I'm interested Mm -hmm. in these ideas of, um, you know, race and racism being sort of these larger uh, group behaviors rather than, like, specific individuals. Though it is really interesting to then point out, I guess, how a lot of times the – the big fights over these um, event, you know, over these these issues come from specific events, right? So we have the the protests right now from a very 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 specific event. Even mm-hmm. though we yeah. can certainly talk about how that event is the cause, you know, is caused by or is influenced by all of these systemic factors, right? It still takes somebody actually kneeling on somebody else's neck to sort of like, you know, we, human beings. I think are so driven by specifics right and so like this this broad systems critique may not be as fundamentally motivating i think sometimes to people as you know seeing a real brutal instance of it right but it's ultimately i think more um theoretically useful Mm -hmm. i mean ultimately
1: we have to get to the point where we we can say and i think we're wrapping up so maybe i should try and say something yeah yeah, give us some final uh, thoughts kind of of positive (laughs) (laughs) but but uh i i think uh uh Ultimately, these are behaviors that are human. And, and it's just that we are in this uh, historical time where um, over the past three or four hundred years, European Americans have accumulated quite a bit of, of wealth and, and power. And so they're doing okay. what all humans would do. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I don't think that's a uniquely okay. white thing, uh, not at all. Mm-hmm. And so what would need to happen is maybe people can look at uh, systems or uh, structures that people respond to which then leads them to um these prejudic- prejudicial and discriminatory behaviors i mean we just need to abstract it out of uh, out of white and black mm-hmm. so we can understand it going forward yeah mhm
0: i think that's a really good point um and i'm i feel bad after you made such a good point that i have to now torture you with our enlightening <laughs> round um, so so for folks who are not familiar, right, we like to wrap our shows by torturing our guests. Um, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me whether they're real or not real. Those are your options. Are you okay. ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is anything real? <laughs> uh yes (laughs) you laugh but i have to check there we've had problems before (laughs) this is quality (laughs) control okay so let's find out what's real all right is the external world real yes okay are colors real no (laughs) phenomenal consciousness no free will no selves (laughs) or persons um
1: I guess yes I guess yeah genders (laughs) um yes I think there are many
0: genders the laughter of someone who sees their own doom uh races (laughs) Uh. And I can only say yes or no? Yes or no. Real or not real? Okay. Then I, I would have to say not real then. Okay. Species? Not real. Okay. Morality? Not real. Rights? Not real.
1: I mean, you're confusing me now. When you first started, I was thinking one way, but I mean, some of these yeah. things, I can say, well, they're real in some instances. I know, I
0: know. That's the torture of it. Uh, knowledge? Real. God or gods? Not real. Society? Real. Money? Not real. Numbers? Real. Fictional characters? Not real. Holes? is in a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? Real. <laughs> Sandwiches? Real. Science? Real. Natural laws? real beauty not real causality real and finally time real okay you survived how you feeling (laughs) i'm okay well look now
1: is is there is there any right or wrong to this do you you tally up something and say you're you know
0: yeah, no, we have a machine in the back that tells us what the actual right answer is. <laughs> you did okay. You got like an 80%. You were all right. You're fine. Um no, there is this is a uh example. It's a project for for pointing out how the word real um, means different things in different contexts and there's no real okay. supplicator and and for torturing people by making them realize halfway through that their definition of the word real is right, incredibly yeah. <laughs> context sensitive. <laughs> yeah. But you don't have to feel bad because you can just hedge one way or the other on all of it, right? You can just say you meant real in one sense and real in another sense, and it's fine. But it's fun, right? It's fun to realize how you, you like we, we, we never listen to, we, like, we never have to deal with this whole list all at once. So that's, that's my amusement, is putting it together that way. Well, thank you so much, Rod. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me about white people. Um, <laughs> and I definitely want to get you back on at some point to talk about non-white people. I think that would be very valuable as well. Um, in the meantime, do you want to let folks know where they can find your work?
1: Sure. So um, I have a YouTube channel that I'm, I'm trying to grow. I, uh, you could look it up under uh, my name, Roderick mm-hmm. Graham or
0: Rod Graham. And my website is uh, roderickgraham.com. Great. We'll link it all in the show notes as well, too. So Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, and uh, stay safe. Thanks. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Um, and I'd like to thank some new patrons. Thanks to ARIPSA and the testimony of Mushroom. Um, as always, of course, I want to thank our top patrons, our $20 tier patrons, Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, blacknonbelievers.com, blacknonbelievers.com, blacknonbelievers.com and Chad T. And of course, all the love and thanks to our top tier $40 lifetime support patrons, Dave Maslich and the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon. Thank you all so much for making all of this possible. I really hope you're enjoying uh, the content that is coming about as a result of your donations. I'd also like to say, if you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. Uh, and if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at Patreon.com slash void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. We'll be starting a new book soon, so join in. Um, most importantly, remember, you are the void and the void is you.